Hey everyone, I'm Brenda and I'm Julia, and you're listening to Roaring Twenties Podcast. Your 20s are known as both the most exciting and most confusing years of your life. We're here to share our stories, to have real and raw conversations, and best of all, to make you feel a little less alone. This podcast was brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Roaring Twenties Podcast. Today, we have on with us a very special guest, Robert DeSena. What you guys are going to hear today is going to be a little different. It's really interesting. Rob is the founder of Counselor for Unity, which he's going to talk to us all about. He's also an author of an incredible book called Chris Aaliyah, and we feel that it's such an important time to have him on to hear about all the amazing stuff that he does. It's so important in the world right now. So we're really excited to have him. Hello and welcome. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. And welcome to uh, your audience as well. Yay. So before we start off, tell us a little bit about you, where you're from, and yeah, take it away. Well, I grew up in uh, in Brooklyn at an early age, uh, in my teenage years, uh, living in a neighborhood with a lot of violence and conflict. In order for me to survive, uh, I got involved in a gang. And that took me to some pretty dark places. And an older gang member, for some reason, saw something in me. And knowing that he was going to die, he made me a reclamation project and basically made me promise to get an education, get out of the neighborhood, and then come back. And mm-hmm. I told him I could never do it. I never thought I could do it. And um, as, as fate would have it, I ended up getting an education and I ended up becoming a teacher. And I ended <laughs> up doing exactly what he wanted me to do. Wow. I loved all the bad kids. <laughs> so wow. I had a lot of influence with them. And they were like, wow, this, this guy's not a regular teacher. He's different. And mm. um, I was able to really uh, connect on a lot of different levels and, and take my, my kids to, uh, to, to levels of achievement they never thought they were capable of. Wow. So that's basically my, my, uh, my... And the other thing I think that was probably seminal for me, because if I didn't have that background, you know, now, you know, Council for Unity deals with gangs. Uh, we're in five prisons. If I didn't have that street credibility, I would have been dead a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the FBI, when it came on my board, that was one of the questions they asked me. How come you're not dead? And it's wow. because I understand and was part of what these lost individuals are are um, immersed in. And when they see me, they don't see a preacher. They see somebody who's like them that made it. And so wow. I've been I've been lucky. The other big thing is my 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 um, lifelong interest in mythology, mm-hmm. which uh, turned me into a very spiritual person. When I was in graduate school, there were so many references poets and, and novelists and so on to, to world myth that I felt that I had better familiarize myself with, mm. with that medium. Otherwise, I wouldn't understand a lot of the, 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 the deeper meanings. Mm-hmm. And, and myth really changed my life. It made me a very spiritual person. The guideposts that I needed to live an informed life came through myth. And mm-hmm. when people ask me, well, how do you explain the success of Council for Unity? I say mythology, and they look at me like I have five horns coming <laughs> out of my head. They're like, mythology, <laughs> all that stuff right, that's what? made up? What is <laughs> it? But, it, but the, in fact, the mythology of Council for Unity is so profound that it has transformed every life that has entered into our domain. So basically, those two factors in my life having a kind of a gang background and a, and a violent past and then finding this magical medium called mythology it was 
it's almost as if those things shape me to do what I had, what I eventually had to do in creating mm-hmm. Council for Unity. Wow, that's so powerful! My goodness, I, I wasn't, I didn't know that much behind your story, and now I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, I can't wait to see where this is gonna go. So you touched a little bit on Council for Unity. So for our listeners who don't know what that is, have no idea, as you're the founder, what is it? How did it start? Give us all the details you can. It started in the most improbable way. It should have never worked. Um, During the mid-70s, New York City was starting to integrate schools. And this was really significant because up until that point, schools in New York City were neighborhood schools. So if you lived in an all-Black neighborhood, you went to a Black elementary school, a Black middle school, and a Black high school. If you were Jewish or you were Italian, all the neighborhoods in the city had what they called, you know, basically um, community schools. Now, with integration, that all had to change because if... Though if, if, if our neighborhoods remain monolithic, we would never be able to integrate. Yeah. However, the planning was so poor because they forced integration into schools without any preparation for kids mm. to become familiar with one another. So, you know, when you read American history and you hear about the melting pot and, you know, e pluribus unum out of many, one, and this whole idea of uh, America being this pluralistic society has no basis, had no basis in reality. Mm -hmm. And as a result, what they read in the history books was not validated by their experience. So now, and I'll use John Dewey High School as the the centerpiece for this, all of a sudden you've got a huge array of races and cultures in a school where kids were not prepared mm. to, to to adjust to that. And so there was tremendous conflict. The school was in an Italian neighborhood on one end with a lot of organized crime present. And on the other side of the school was the Marlboro Projects, which was basically, you know, low-income housing, a lot of uh, people of color. And that was the population in the school. Mm-hmm. The Italians don't like strangers in their neighborhood. And there's a, that's, an, that's, a, that, that's another interview why. It, it has a lot to to do with the history of Southern Italy. Mm. And so they were not open to this. And so all of a sudden, the most experimental, innovative school in New York, maybe in the country, is now beset with serious racial and um, cultural conflict. A lot of intruders coming into the building, assaults all around the neighborhood. And all of a sudden, this, this great experiment was put at risk because the school really didn't have a lot of security and the openness and freedom made it very easy for people to come into the building. And so the, the experiment was under threat. So the principal and the union, the UFT, and the student government came to me, knowing my background, and they asked me to intervene to see if there wasn't some way out of this. So I ended up recruiting the leaders of all of the different cultures and races who were in conflict basically hated each other. They were all racists. They had a violent history. They did a lot of damage to one another. And everybody in the school said, you're crazy. It's never going to work. How are you going to convince them to, 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 to stop what they're doing and, and become part of something else? Yeah. And I said, I really don't know, but I have an idea. So I, I had a, a relationship with each of these six uh, individuals on a one-to-one basis. And I had helped them out on a lot of levels especially personally. So they owed me. <laughs> the other thing was that um, my gangster friends owned a, uh, a bar in uh, about four blocks from the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I reconnected with them by accident. 
when they found out I was a teacher, they laughed for a half an hour. <laughs> of course. Teacher, <laughs> arch criminal, you know, but they, 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 they helped me. So when I had to do mediations with this, with this group, I didn't do it in school. I did it in the back of this place. Mm. And of course, since it was, I can't tell you what the affiliation was, but let's just say <laughs> they were from one of the five crime families. Uh-huh. The group I was dealing with was well aware of that. And they became angels pretty quickly because oh, they yeah. knew what the consequences would have been, God forbid, if they felt I was in trouble. Mm. So we made a deal that we would, I asked them to commit to meet with me four days a week for one year and to see if there wasn't some way to end these cycles of violence, which damaged them and would damage their children and their children's children if some change didn't take place. And so we agreed, it was, it was really difficult. There was a lot of mistrust. I applied some protocols, which I got them to agree to. One was that whatever was said in that room stays in that room. The, the, the other was that as long as we were meeting, if anybody in the school had a beef against another group, they would have to come before this group. Mm-hmm. And so the bad guys really ended up saving the school because if you had a problem with another, with, a, with, with the kid from another culture and you had, a, it wasn't even the council for unity. It was like a commission. It was like an organized crime commission. It was like six families. Yeah. So if you had a beef, there was no way you, you, you wouldn't resolve that beef because you'd have six gangs coming down on you. So after a while, there were no more beefs in the school, which was a miracle. Nobody believed it. But mm-hmm. the breakthrough really, really came, and I think it's really important, especially for your audience, to understand something about men. Uh, we've been living under a curse for, for two millennia. Since the Iron Age, men have really been conditioned to be strong and silent, never to show any signs of female virtue in the sense that you don't show compassion, Hmm. you don't show sensitivity, you don't show vulnerability. It's a sign of weakness. Mm -hmm. And so men have been wearing this facade and every Mm -hmm. gang member wears this facade too, where they can't take their mask off and share the incredible pain and Mm -hmm. damage that they have experienced. And so they live their life through this mask, which is a facade of bravado, violence, and, and a fear of being revealed. That internal pressure on them leads to two things, rage and depression. I know because I had both. And so I ended up talking a lot about that and using some of the principles in myth, got to talk about what it means to be an authentic man. And to be an authentic man and to be a heroic man, you need to be your total self, which implies a female side, and you need to take that mask off and be vulnerable. Needless to say, that was a huge struggle for for these six guys. But a pivotal moment occurred when one of the six, I'm not going to mention his his culture or race, came in, looked lousy, and I said, what's the matter? You you look terrible. And um, he started to talk about his circumstance, abusive father. In fact, when I go to prison, almost every inmate has horrible stories about an abusive father. Mm -hmm. Uh, Abandonment, physical, psychological abuse, mother, substance abuse problems, seeing things at seven years old that a little kid shouldn't see, joining a gang, failure in school, negatively perceived by his community. And as he was talking, he broke down and started to cry. He went off a chair and ended up on the floor in a fetal position and it was pro- it was like the genie got out of the bottle mm-hmm. it was probably the first time in his life where he allowed himself to be vulnerable and in that moment he became the thing he was afraid to be he became vulnerable he showed sensitivity and the miracle was that the other five guys who wanted to shoot him realized that they were on the floor with him 
because that was the same story they had. So here they are with different races, different cultures, black, Italian, Latino, Asian, Jewish. And all of a sudden it was like, that's me. Yeah. So I said, well, what are you going to do? Leave him on the floor? Pick him up. This is, this is how Council of Finney wow. got formed. So he's wiping the tears away. And one by one, each guy went and said, I feel you, man. I'm going wow. through the same shit. And um, some of them broke down and the miracle happened. They discovered their common humanity and they did the thing they feared most. They showed compassion. They showed affection. They received affection. The very things that they felt would make them weak was the passport to their authenticity. So now the miracle happens. We were meeting for an hour initially. Now they won't go home. Because <laughs> they're more themselves with their enemies than they mm. are with their friends. When they go back to their friends, they got to put the mask back on. So mm. they didn't want to leave that room because now they were spilling their guts. They were revealing their journey. They were getting help. They were giving help. And that was the miracle that ultimately led to Council for Unity. And wow. the other thing that I think was phenomenal, and this is why from those six gang leaders, we're a, a force in school systems, prisons, police departments and communities, and we're growing every day. The, the miracle was this. The kids in the school never saw or experienced unity coming out of diversity. It was something that was an American ideal that existed in the history books, but it doesn't exist in reality. Well, now it did. So you had all the kids in the school who are in one of these groups, and now they're realizing, wow, as long as this, this group is meeting, there's no more violence. You know what? There's a real investment in children coming together in a unity model because it addresses a profound need, the need for safety. And the other thing that was profound, which was psychological more than, than physical, was, well, if, there's, if you bring everybody together, there's nobody left to fight. And the other uh, flip to the coin was, if you bring everybody together, there's nobody left to make fun of. And so two things happened in that building for 3,000 kids. I'm safe. And as long as this group is meeting, nobody's making fun of me anymore. Mm -hmm. So for the first time, maybe in the history of this country, a unity model was born. And the byproduct of that had profound implications for everybody, not just the group. And I will say one other thing uh, from an historic perspective that I think is incredibly profound. In this country, we've had 200 years of grief dealing with issues of race and hatred of immigrants and hatred of other cultures, especially people who were different. And for 200 years, the best we could come up with was to pass laws and hope that we could mandate or force people to respect one another. And it's never worked. So here in the American landscape in 1975, on a tiny dot on the American map, this problem, which has plagued this country for 200 years, rears its ugly head in Bensonhurst with the anticipation that it, this, this conflict is going to end once again in violence. And the opposite happened. And here's the miracle mm. of Council for Unity. Those six members from those six cultures and, and races made a statement, and it wasn't verbal, but this was the statement they made. This problem that's been infecting this country for 200 years stops in this place, in this time, not by mandate, but by our intention to stop it. That was profound. Wow. I, I could I almost know. cry. That was I, oh, I am too. Me too. <laughs> I mean, yeah. how amazing is that? Like, and how much do we all need that? And out of unity and empathy and 
it's just it's beautiful it's, well, and it's so relevant these kids from all these different cultures as as they began to meet instead of learning about religions or about uh, cultures or races from the history books they were talking about their own personal experiences they Sad. talked about the problems in their culture the struggles they were going through and the more they did this the more they were connected by a common humanity because they shared the same journey uh -huh. so now it was like we're our own curriculum Wow. And that was profound. So now comes the, the hard part. We made the peace. I had no intention uh, or plan to make this permanent. It was like, wow, what a miracle. I told every one of my, look at what you did. Yeah. The police educators, the good kids in the school could not solve this problem. And the guys with the black hats became the heroes. Mm -hmm. Every one of you. Mm -hmm. It's Miller time. And they were like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, we solved the problem. And they said again, what do you, what do you mean? I said, well, we did what we, we set out to do. And they said, if we break up now, we're going to get replaced. This problem's going to happen all over again. And you will never get anybody back to the table because this unity thing mm -hmm. will not have worked. Yep. So it was like, okay, what do you want to do? And we sat there and basically it was, let's create something. Let's take mm -hmm. what we went through and turn it into into something like a gang. And if this experience could reclaim us, why can't it reclaim an army of kids like us? Mm. And that's going to be our message. And so for a year, we created something that never existed before, and it was called Council for Unity. And um, this also involved some really, really powerful women who basically forced this group to behave like gentlemen and made them aware that a lot of the bravado and a lot of the macho-ness that they thought made them attractive, they ultimately were convinced that it made them repulsive. Mm. And so the women in Council for... <laughs> I'm going to get choked up again. The women in Council for Unity became catalysts for change in the way men treat women. So, wow. and, and the byproduct was, wow, me being more understanding, more compassionate, actually makes me more successful. Yep. And all the crap I was told being a tough guy. Yeah. And so you had this amazing gender shift also. Mm -hmm. So we basically said, well, what the hell are we going to do? What the hell are we going to do? This thing never existed before. What is it going to look like? Uh, and yeah. basically we said, um, well, maybe there's one place we could start. We all got involved in a criminal lifestyle. And we said, well, why don't we take a look at what drew us to gangs and to me, the mob, because that's been incredibly successful. There's, gangs have been successful since the 1700s. You know, look at the movie, Gangs in New York. It goes back to the Five Point Gang and the Jolly Rabbits and so on. Um, and so it's always been here. And mm -hmm. gang life has been ex extremely successful. Mm -hmm. So we looked at a couple of things because that was going to be our competition. So the first thing was that we joined what we joined because we wanted to be part of a family. Now, here's the kicker in this country. Even though there's a 50% divorce rate, we all know that the other 50% of families, most of them are far from functional. So kids are not getting, especially in a materialistic society where everything is driven by acquisition, where families that, you know, our grandparents, you, you had dinner and the whole family sat down and had dinner together. Now kids are eating in another room. The, there's a tremendous dislocation. Yeah. And there's, there's a tremendous breakdown in relationships. So from my generation on, there's a very strong need for family. And gangs mm -hmm. and the mob promise you a family. So we talked about that. And the first thing we realized is that the family we joined forced us to commit a criminal act. 
and robbed us of our free will. That's not what families do. And they also dehumanized us and turned us into cruel, insensitive, violent people. Mm-hmm. We lost our humanity. And so the first principle of Council of Unity, and this is the, the fuse concept of family unity, self-esteem and empowerment, is we still need that family. So the council family is going to be a family where we're going to focus on each other's growth and development so we all have a future and we're going to stay together. The second thing is we're going to ensure the dignity of everybody in this room and we're going to invite and allow people to take their masks off and to become authentic. And that's going to be the council family. Well, that alone would have guaranteed our success. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing was safety. Why do you think I got involved in a gang? My parents were useless to me at 13. And any kid who lives in a tough neighborhood, uh, your mother and father aren't going to walk you around to protect you. You're dead. Mm -hmm. So they're useless. You You have to find a way to survive. So this idea of joining something that's going to ensure your safety had the exact opposite result. What you joined guaranteed you revenge. It did not guarantee you safety. And so... When you think of the consequences of living a violent lifestyle, revenge guarantees that violence will never end. And so we we discovered, and this became the second principle of counsel, the one thing we experienced that guaranteed our safety was unity. Mm -hmm. If you get everybody together, the violence ends. Mm -hmm. And the other part of that was forgiveness. Mm -hmm. We've all done damage to other people. We need forgiveness. And we need to show it. And so unity became the next principle of counsel. And the unity guaranteed an end to violence and an end to racism uh, and and discrimination. Mm-hmm. And the third thing was 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 that we, we all had to struggle with. And I witnessed this um, before the pandemic in every school I've ever gone to. So many of our kids are struggling with self-esteem issues, yep. self-hate issues for a hundred different reasons. And it's why they become self-destructive. It's why they turn to drugs. It's why they become promiscuous because they have low self-esteem. And we knew that in order for us to meet the needs of kids who would join us, we'd have to have a a, a platform, a medium to restore that self-esteem. And we did that by drawing upon the natural talents and abilities of the kids in the program. So we had to recruit. So we did plays. Uh, we needed Yay. people to market the program. We needed uh, people to do choreography. We needed people to do graphics. Well, these are all natural skills mm-hmm. that our kids had. So instead of going into a classroom where they're failing and they feel stupid, they're in Council It's like, wow, when they look at me, they don't look at what I can't do. They look at me for what I can do. I wow. love this place. Yeah. And the final thing was empowerment, that Mm -hmm. instead of me running the program or a teacher running the program, power was handed over to the kids. You would have to create an executive group that would be responsible for the work that we do and and be responsible for the morale of all the members. Mm -hmm. And so it was almost like we set up a board of directors. And we had department heads who would chair people. And we had a cultural program. We had a networking program. We had an environment program. We, we had a whole performance-based uh, uh, program. And so every kid in, the, in council had to join one of these committees. And they joined the committee that 
offered them the opportunity to showcase what they could do. So family unity, self-esteem, and empowerment became the mythology of counsel. So picture this. You're a kid. Mom, I love this program. It's a real family. Nobody's making fun of me anymore. I'm safe. When they look at me, they see what, I, what I'm capable of. And they believe that I have enough responsibility to run this thing. I'm home. Wow. And that became the birthright of counsel. And the second thing was, was taken right out of myth and right out of the hero cycle uh, and out of gang life. And that is this whole idea of a rite of, of passage. Mm. And every counsel kid, just like Chrysalia, which we'll get to later, yes, we will. had to undergo a rite of passage. Now, what, what, what did that mean? Well, if the council was going to be a family, then you had to know and practice those behaviors that promoted intimacy and quality relationships. Mm -hmm. And you would have to avoid those behaviors, which you've been following all your life up until now, all those behaviors that destroy quality relationships. And so every kid in council had to have interpersonal goals and they got a manual to track that. So if you can't listen, if you can't speak constructively, if you're not open to constructive criticism and change, if you can't uh, get your feelings out, if you can't take your mask off, you're not going to get a family and you're not going to be trusted. And so everybody in council was working on sets of behaviors that promoted family. Now, once that's this began to happen, we became a tribe where everybody had value, but everybody knew, I have to behave this way or I'm going to lose this thing. And so that became the rite of passage. And of course, our mission, which was to promote unity, safety, and achievement in schools and communities, in uh, law enforcement agencies, and in correctional facilities, meant that you had to work. You had to work mm -hmm. on projects to promote unity. So your manual was given to you for a year, you were on probation, and you had to show these behavioral changes and a commitment to our mission. And then you would get inducted, just like an organized crime family. You got made. Mm. You had a rite of passage. Every gang requires the same thing. Every wow. primitive culture, when you would think that gangs studied this, you know, you, you go through a rite of passage to become part of the tribe. Uh -huh. So this is standard in, in, yeah. in the human equation. And so with this rite of passage, the mythology of Council for Unity was complete. Oh, and then yeah. from that, the miracles unfolded. We ended up being picked up by the Board of Ed. They put us in eight of the most violent heights. Well, first off, they called me downtown and basically threw almost $600,000 at, at me to create Council for Unity in the Board of Ed. I almost pissed out. Amazing. <laughs> we were just in Council. We were just in John Dewey High School. Right. Your father was part of that. Mm -hmm. we, we were like this miracle that, that all the politicians and all the cultural and religious groups would come to see, but nothing happened. All of a sudden, with all the racial stuff, so I had to develop a curriculum, mm -hmm. which I did, and they allowed me to hire Council for Unity alumni who knew the program backwards and forwards, and they put us in eight of the most violent high schools in the city. Well, guess what happened? Within three months, all those schools went through the same transformation, and then superintendents in communities who realized that the problems we were addressing started as early as elementary school basically came to us and said why are you waiting for kids to become teenagers when yeah. we're seeing the problems in the third grade yeah yeah oh, you, yeah so can you customize your curriculum so that we can use it in elementary and middle schools so now the movement begins now we're in middle schools, elementary schools. Uh, we ended up through the Boys and Girls Club going to um, 
12 sites in nine in nine states. We ended up with two programs overseas, which is a whole wow. other story for another interview. <laughs> and, and then all of a sudden we end up going all through Long Island and the new model of council started in Riverhead, a segregated community for a hundred years. Even uh, people in, 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 um, in, in the faith-based community were basically segregated. Jews went to shul, blacks went to, uh, the, you know, Baptist uh, churches, Catholics did the same thing. Uh, they, they practiced segregation and they weren't even conscious of it. So when we were in the school and they had gangs, when everybody got united, the kids said, this isn't going to work if our parents don't get involved. So there was a big meeting in the library and black, Latino and, and white parents came together and their kids said, we need a council for unity in this community. Because wow. this isn't going to work if we just have it in the school. So guess what wow. happens? Parents join. The clergy joins. They begin sharing parishioners. The Chamber wow. of Commerce joins. The Rotarians join. And then the police department joins. And then the jail joins. Wow. Everybody needs this. Everybody needs need it. This. Yes. If Seriously. You, and if, uh, I want your listeners to do me a favor. Because if anybody's listening to me, you know what they got to be saying? This guy's crazy. I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. It sounds too good. On the website, there is a video called Behind Bars, A Chance for Change. And it was nominated for an Emmy. Part of that uh, uh, special deals with council for unity in schools. And a, a police officer, a female police officer who was in council says, and this really summed up our model and why the whole country needs us. She says, people have to understand the council for unity model in Riverhead is unique. It involves the schools. It involves the community, it involves the police department, and it involves the jail. And all of us together are raising children, giving them hope. And this is the model that's going to transform the country. Because at yeah. school, community, if you saw the, when, when the police first went into Riverhead, the kids spit on the floor, cursed them, and got up and left. That was in 2007. Now, eight police officers go regularly. They know every kid in the school. Um, if a kid is, is, is driving too fast, and he gets pulled over, it's a council kid, the cops, instead of giving him a ticket, say, what are you doing? You're going too fast. Smarten up. They're making too much noise. There's a call, you know, the cops, they know the kids. There's no yeah. conflict. There's no violence. It's like, hey guys, we just got a call. You're making yeah. too much noise. No problem. We'll see you in class on Monday. Wow. And the cops this... in the programs can't even talk about council for unity without breaking down. Oh my goodness. Seriously, you have shared so many incredible things and probably without fully knowing our mission of our podcast here, you have touched on every single thing that we're trying to achieve additionally, even mm -hmm. from being vulnerable, creating a community, showing up as your authentic self. All of these little pieces are just proven to to lead down a path of success and through compassion and empathy and all these things of what we're trying to get the world and our own communities to, to be more like. So it's it's fascinating and I hope that we can continue to get this to be a bigger part of, of our lives. So how can we get this into more schools? I know that the Board of Ed and all that stuff picks it up, but is there, if it's not in a school that, that we know or something like that, how do we kind of go about that? Yeah, because well, everybody needs this. Everybody needs Yeah, it's this. so important. Amazing. I mean, what, you, what you're basically pr promoting here, look, you can't solve social problems, cultural and racial problems in school if you've got a fractured, divided community. And God knows what, what we're living under today. The divisions in this country have never been more raw. Yeah. Um, so you can't have a school-based model alone. You need a community model that comes together and integrates. And the only way that this abuse 
that we're witnessing in police departments ends is when a police department, we have a law enforcement, uh, we call it a, a public safety curriculum, the police joint council for unity. They go through the, the same training that our teachers go through. They do Dragon Slayer, which we can talk about later, and they do a lot of role playing. And eventually they sit in, a, in, in and on and become part of the council for unity class. Now picture this, eight years after being in this program, the cops know everybody. They're Council for Unity members. They're not seen wearing blue or having a badge. They're seen as Council for Unity members who have a lot of problems also that they share. Hmm. When they go on patrol, they know everybody. And that's what community policing has to do. Mm -hmm. And when you have that, you're not gonna see the levels of abuse. Mm -hmm. And they will tell you, nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. And the final thing is, is prison. If you don't have a re-entry program, which we do, and people come into the neighborhood, into the community, and they can't find employment, they have to eat. Yep. And if they can't find employment, what do you think they're gonna do? The underground economy is drugs and guns. And you can't tell me I'm supposed to starve to death because you won't let me find work. And so we have a re-entry program, free, free education in, in, in a learning institute and employment in the construction trades. So that's the council model. How would you go about doing this? Well, your clients down where you are would be uh, superintendents, uh, commissioners of education, if you had them, uh, police chiefs, um, community-based organizations, correctional facilities. Whoever gets this program is going to experience in rapid order, life-changing experiences. That's what this thing does. This flag gets planted somewhere. It transforms every environment where it's at. And you know what, it, what, the, what the rub is? It's so simple. You would have thought 100 people would have thought this up. It's what, it, it, you know, you're looking at what, what America is supposed to be. You want to know what the great irony is? America is incredible on paper. It's not incredible in reality. The only place where it's incredible in reality is the Council for Unity. Because everything that America is on paper, we are in reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're from sea to shining sea, crown thy hope with brotherhood, you know, liberty and justice for all. It's in Council for Unity. So I would direct people to the website. You certainly can use uh, my contact information. And then we'll, there's nothing to prevent me from taking a, hopping on a plane and going wherever I got to go to do a presentation. But this thing has 45 years behind it. It's not a pipe dream. And you guys could form your own council for unity. You could take your own group, not change one thing that you're doing, and we give you our blessing and you become a council chapter. Now you could say, not only are you doing what you're doing, but you can point to the website and say, and we're a part of something that's creating change and it's going to create change all over the country and we're part of this. And you could mm -hmm. do it. It's it's incredible. I think, I think every community, every school, every town, I think everybody needs something like this. And like, it, I mean... You've said it all. It's just so, it's so incredible. And I feel like we could talk about Council for Unity for, for days and days because it's just so powerful and amazing. But I do want to get to Cressalia before sure. we run out of time because she's also amazing. So shifting gears a little bit, tell us about the book. Tell us about what gave you the inspiration to write her and write this story. And for anyone who doesn't know the book, give us just a little background on it. Well, first off, I named her after the Chrysalis which is the cocoon out of which a majestic butterfly emerges. The cocoon is a potential and its emergence, which is a birthing, is really the beginning of a journey to self-awareness. I had a problem in the, in the council program. We have a dragon slayer curriculum 
and while it's profound for both boys and girls, the protagonist is a male. Even though at the end of the story, as he, his legacy is to invite children to face their dragons and to cross the world they and to cross into the world they haven't experienced to face their dragons and to find the weapons to do that. And that's for both boys and girls. But he's a male, so I'm struggling with. I need in the Council for Unity universe. I need an incredibly powerful female icon. We and the great irony is, anybody who knows me and they look at me. I look like a wise guy. I've been a feminist since I got involved in mythology. The equations in myth are basically this. They all direct us to harmony. And you have to balance out your male and female energies. And for men who repress their female side and become invulnerable and become incapable of affection or uh, sensitivity, suffer horribly. And so at an early age, I realized that if I didn't find my female self, I was going to end up as sick as all my friends. And so I began to see from a cosmic point of view that men have been in charge of this universe since the dawn of the Iron Age, two millennia. And what has the rule of men produced for us? A universe filled with solving problems through violence, a universe that pivots around intolerance, with the right to destroy anybody who doesn't think like you, a universe where this planet, which is female Earth, has been denigrated for centuries, where the virtues of compassion and tolerance and empathy are signs of weakness, and we've pretty much screwed up this, pla this planet for the last, the last two millennia. And unless and until a great female energy comes that restores us to the better side of our nature, we're not getting out of this century alive. So Chris Lear was created by me to do that. And she does it in an incredible way. I mean, there's so many mythological layers in there, but- um, Yeah, the book is incredible. I mean, I encourage everybody to read it. It's just so, it's so beautiful. It's amazing. Well, I'll just share a couple of things which I think are, are, are really- Please uh, do, yeah. Profound. Um, first off, I stared at a blank page in my computer for a month. <laughs> I knew what I wanted to write and like almost every everybody, it's like, where do you start? I mean, how am I gonna? And I, and I, real, I remembered when I was in graduate school, I was studying literary criticism. And one of the things that Edgar Allan Poe said, which caught me immediately, he said, the most compelling motif in all of literature is the death of a beautiful woman. And so on the first page of Chrysalia, now here, here is a kingdom that is, is living in an ideal environment. It's isolated from all the other cultures on the planet, from deserts and forests. And so they pretty much had a life that's never, that's evolved in a very, very high, uh, at a very high level. Men and women were equal. They, they, they worshiped nature. Their homes were built out of stone instead of trees. They had a very, very high level of civilization. And these other kingdoms, which are dominated by men, and you could substitute Trump, Putin, Xi from China, the guy from North Korea, whoever else you want to pick. I couldn't name them after these guys. <laughs> because their interaction is going to destroy this planet. Mm. So they're refugees, which we're dealing with now all over the world. They're all trying 
you know, in their in their history books and in their myth, there is this place that they know. It's almost like the lost Atlantis that they know exists somewhere. So all of these immigrants are coming to this this country called Calderon, and they're coming because they're looking right out of the Bible. They're looking for the promised land. They're looking mm-hmm. for a place of haven. But the problem is that they're bringing all the hatreds that they cultivated in their world, and they're going to destroy this one. Mm-hmm. So Chris Ulea's mother who is an incredibly powerful, compassionate queen, says we should educate these children into our, our, our values. And through that, they'll change and they'll come to appreciate what, what we give them. But she dies. And that happens on the, on, on the first page. So now all of the people, they, need, they don't have an army. Uh, they've never needed one. And now all of a sudden, these immigrants are creating chaos. And now they want an army. And a good portion of them want to annihilate them build a wall, send them back where they came from. They're going to destroy us. Get them out of here. And so at the death of Chrysalia's mother and the dragon slayer, I took this right out of the Grail legend. I took a motif out of Japanese myth where no heroic deed could be the result of an act of hatred. And when Chrysalia's father killed the dragon, he was abandoned as a child. He was poor. He was vilified by his community. He suffered horribly. And when he got the magic weapons, when he went up to kill the dragon and he tells this to his daughter, he said, I didn't go up there in that cave to kill that dragon to become a king. I didn't go up there to get all the gold that the dragon stole. And I didn't go up there for you. Somebody had to pay for my grief. And I knew with the weapons I had, I could not be defeated. So I killed the dragon out of hate. And when his blood got on me, from that day forward, I became weaker and weaker. And I realized the most dangerous dragons are not the ones in the storybooks. The most dangerous dragons are the ones within. And it's every human being's priority mm-hmm. to do that. And I, once one of these great um, uh, Islamic mystics said, the greatest jihad is the jihad within. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, that's all of our struggles. So Chrysalia, untested, she has incredible power. I mean, she has the the depth, the vision, the incredible intuitive powers of her mother and the physical strength of her father. So she has to act. She's she's 15, her father's too weak, and she convenes all of, it was like what I did in 1975. <laughs> Every, everybody in Council for Unity knows that the, the leaders of those chieftains, the way I described them, was the original mm-hmm. members of council. Mm-hmm. It's like, holy God, that's Nelson Chilenis. That's Nikki Chipetta. <laughs> now, nobody knows there's a reason, but for council members, they know. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, they look at her as like, we're mad that the king sent her. She's a girl. It, it's an insult. And one of them, who was really brutal, figured this place doesn't have an army. She's, they're meeting in the throne of her father. There is this huge sword that, he, that, no, that really no human being could wield. And it's the sword he used to kill the dragon. And it's above the throne that she's sitting on. And the inscription above it is the most dangerous dragons are the ones that lie within. So this guy figures, he's going to rape her. So I'll just go. Who's going to stop me? I'll take her. I'll drag her off into the forest. I'll force her to submit to me. I'll come back and be king. I'll dominate all these other tribes. And I'll take over. But she read, she, she read his mind. As he's coming to take her, she removes the sword and cuts his arm off. The guy is, it, it, what he had done to so many others is now done to him. So at that point, she was safe, but she had rage. So she cut his head off and she holds that head 
in front of the other chieftains and announces herself. I'm Chrysalia, the daughter of Beldonia, the merciful, and Salasan, the dragon slayer. You can have one or the other, but defy me and you're all dead. So now they're all, we have no choice. She's yeah. going to kill us. We have to stop. She goes back to her father, and this is the beginning of her journey, really, because she's not ready. And she tells him what happened. And he is horrified. And he says, did any blood from from that, that, that chieftain fall in any part of your body? And she says, no. Why? And he tells her the story mm-hmm. about him committing the act out of rage. And she said, I knew when I cut his arm off, I was safe. But the hatred in me was so great. Mm. I killed him when I didn't have to. Mm. So now her imperative is, and we could probably do another interview on this. Um, we definitely could. She's not ready. So she creates a council for you and she goes all the chieftains together. This has always been a, a kingdom that, that um, was ruled by dragon slayers, male or female. And now with the king weak, he can't rule. So she creates a council for unity. (laughs) And the king is going to be the advisor. And um, she has to go into the forest because the only way that she can safeguard her world is to go into the world of Putin and Trump and Xi and all the other male rulers who are the equivalent in in, in that world. And she's going to have to confront them Mm -hmm. and transform them Otherwise, there's there's going to be no end to them coming into this world. Mm. But in order to do that, she has to go through a rite of passage. If you look at every great spiritual leader, there's two things they have to overcome. And that goes for all of us, really. Either you are your biology and nothing more, and you live your life out of your animal needs, which means you're basically living your life for you. And the other great thing is your ego. So all these great spiritual leaders have to confront two things or they can't have a spiritual journey. And they're not going to discover the divine energy that's in all of us. You have to overcome your biology, your appetites, and you have to overcome your ego and discover that your redemption is in the love of the other, which is what the hero and the heroine do. And Chris Aaliyah has to do that. What I didn't realize when I wrote it was that she parallels two other great religious leaders, Christ and Buddha. So before Christ began his, his, his uh, um, spiritual journey, he went into the desert and was tempted by the devil f- during 40 days. And basically, you know, the devil said to him, well, you're starving. Why don't you take the, the, the bricks from the temple and turn it into bread? This was a temptation to his appetite. Take care of your body. And he said, man does not live by bread alone. And then he says, well, you know, if you worship me, you'll inherit all the kingdoms in the world. You know, the temptation to glory and fame, he rejects Mm -hmm. that. And then to to pride. Well, if you're really the son of God, why don't you throw yourself off the temple and the angels will catch you, Mm -hmm. which would have been another temptation to pride. So he overcomes the three and he begins it. Buddha did the same thing, only he went into the forest and he was tempted three times. What I didn't realize is that Chris gets tempted three times. And there are three temptations of energies in her that are very powerful. Mm-hmm. And unless she overcomes them, she can't change the world. And mm-hmm. so she goes through this rite of passage. One was indolence, where she ends up in a kingdom of children where everything is perfect. And like a lot of us, why leave childhood? Yeah, yeah. It's perfect. You know, yeah. I, I would, I, 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 I want to stay there. The other was she gets a chance to see the world that she's going to enter. And it's horrible. It's everything that exists in our world. You know, great religious edifices and and people starving blocks away. Mm -hmm. Pollution everywhere, forests being destroyed, and a beast from the forest 
makes her look at this and says to her, don't make any mistake. I represent the earth and the earth hates them. The earth doesn't care if they're good or bad. What the earth is going to celebrate is that every time one of them dies, it's less weight on this planet. So I have an army at the drop of a hat. We will go down there and wipe every one of them out. And Chrysalia is enraged. And she's, she, she basically says that she, she's going to destroy them. And all of a sudden, she turns around and looks at this, this beast. And it's carrying the head of her mother. And she realizes that her rage must be overcome or she's not equipped to do this. And so she falls into an exhaustion, basically, and realizes that she has to overcome her violence. She has to overcome her indolence. You know, she goes through this whole big thing and then she brings all the leaders together and um, they go on a, a journey through the, uh, through the desert because there's a mystical treasure. And she tells them that one of them will inherit it and the power from that treasure will be so great that the other five leaders will have to bow down in front of them. But on the journey, she tells them that they can't wear any kingly robes. They travel for a great distance, no, no accompaniments. And while they, these, these, these chieftains are traveling in the desert, there's no distractions. They're lonely. At night, they build a fire. They end up talking about their families. And without realizing it, what happened in Council for Unity in 1975, they're starting to discover one another. Mm -hmm. And I'll just end it with this. She said, the only way you're going to get to the top of that mountain, you have to fast for three days. And each one of you has a holy book. You have to read it for those three days without any interference from any clergy. And so they all, that could be the Torah, the New Testament, the Quran, the Vedas. And as they read it, they're basically discovering that they all say the same thing love God, love your neighbor. Yep. There's cruelty in it, but there's also poetry. And they realize as they're climbing up the mountain with their knuckles bleeding, they're beginning to have some empathy for one another. And each one of them says, you know what? If I get this treasure, I'm just going to share it. And each one of them thinks that the only one, the only one who's going to make it to the top is them, which is what all, all religions do. Mm -hmm. My path is the only path. Mm -hmm. Your path is cursed. Mm -hmm. You're an infidel. That gives me the right to kill you and your family, or at least to denigrate you. Mm -hmm. And I'm the, I'm the only one that's going to get to the top of that mountain. The mythic journey is that as everybody takes that trip, when they get to the top of the mountain, you know what the first response is? And this is how, what happened with the kings. How the hell did you get up here? Mm -hmm. How the hell did you get up here? Mm -hmm. You mean the path that my book gave me is the same path that your book gave you? Mm -hmm. And that this thing that made us invested in us to get up here and now we realize that our differences is part of his plan its plan and we have to accept that and that's the beginning of religion turning into spirituality hmm. and of course there is no treasure when they remove the stone where they think the treasure is the deity appears and creates 10 new commandments Mm -hmm. which I'm not going to get into. But so the book is really an extraordinary, it, it, it addresses two millennia of male catastrophe in governance. And through the force of this incredible young woman, this woman who brings her female energies to these men and makes them discover their inner women. And one of the things they have to do when they go back, and they all agree, is that widows are going to govern. And the reason is that widows will never do to their cultures what men will do because they know what it means to have orphans mm. and, to, and to suffer the death of children. Mm -hmm. They're more suitable to have the rule of compassion mm -hmm. and the chieftains agree to that. So Chris Aaliyah really represents a, mo a millennial shift. And if it doesn't happen, 
we're not getting out of here. Yeah. And she's a vehicle to make that happen. So if every, anybody wants to read it, uh, just go to Amazon.com and type in Chrysalia, C-H-R-Y-S-A-L-L-I-A, colon, Chrysalia, the Princess of Possibility. And in the Amazing. book, the, 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 king, the, the chieftains say there'll be a multitude of children, of women who are going to be born, who will be called Chrysalia because of you. Oh, it's amazing. Amazing. It's your, beautiful. Your father wrote the best review. <laughs> he's, he's good for that. He's he wrote, good for that. He's good with his words. <laughs> yes. And he did, he did something that, which I, he forced me to do the same thing. He read it three times and found something that he missed each time he read it. Yeah. I've read it 20 times. I tried to stay away from it. I read it about <laughs> six months ago. I didn't even believe I wrote it. It was like, who wrote this? <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah, was like I was reading something that somebody else wrote, and I'm looking at all these mythological motifs, and it's like these subliminal messages. Yep. Yep. I wasn't even conscious of. Yeah. And and they and they suffuse the yep. whole the whole work. It is. It's. it's so I don't. It's so I don't think incredible. I wrote it. I you did. <laughs> you wrote. I definitely it. did. Some genius <laughs> came to you from the ether, <laughs> wrote it, it through you. It's the only experience men have that um, comes close to childbirth. You know, you have this thing inside of you that you can't see that's incubating and it's kicking the hell out of you. And it, it's got to come out because if it doesn't come out, you're going to explode. Mm-hmm. And you have to give birth to this damn thing. Mm-hmm. And you go through a labor to get it out. And then once it's out, you got to cut the cord. And all of a sudden, it <laughs> takes on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. Now, and here I am in Council of Unity 45 years later, and they're replacing me, which is what it's meant to be. So I went through a birth. I literally went through labor to, to get this thing out of me. And that was my female, my own female journey. It's amazing. The book is beautiful. There's so many, I mean, we could talk about it forever. There's so many beautiful morals and lessons. I really encourage everybody to go and read it. It's just gorgeous. And Bob, I, I wish we could keep you for longer because you've been so incredible. And thank you I'll for sharing back. so I, much I with us. I you guys. Absolutely. Oh, we would love it. so much. Before we let you go, we have like just one little question we want to ask you, which is a little bit different than what we've been talking about. But we ask this to all our guests because it's important to our community if there was one thing that you could tell your 20 year old self what would it be i think one of the things i would say is that all the wisdom that i could impart to you is vocabulary and that whatever you inherit you have to cross that boundary into the world you have not yet experienced and turn that knowledge that you're receiving into wisdom and until you've had that experience, the words mean nothing. And so this Mm -hmm. idea of, you know, in all of myth, and this is what I would tell my 20 year old self, and it's, it's in our lives. There is a boundary. It's, it's in your life and it's, it's in my life, even at this stage. And that boundary separates the world I know and the world I have not yet experienced. And the human journey, as frightening as it is, is to cross that boundary. It's why you leave home. It's entering the world you do not know, fraught with challenge and and tragedy, but you have to cross the boundary. And that would be the, the, the one thing I would say to my 20-year-old self. The best gift I can give you is the courage to take the journey. Wow. I did it, yeah. and I'm no better than you, and if I could do it, you could do it. My goodness. Bob, thank you so much. You have really 
been so inspiring, given us so much detail, so much value. We know our community, our listeners, everyone that comes across this and comes across you is deeply, deeply impacted and changed for the better um, and inspired to make change in, in their own lives individually and for others. So everybody, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We're going to link both the book, Chrysalia, and the Council for Unity website in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. Stay connected with us. Let us know what you think of this episode. And Bob, thank you so much thank for you so giving much, us your time. Bob. Great, I love it. I love it. Where's, your, where's your father? <laughs> I know. We need, next time he'll come join us. I'm yes. gonna make the I'm gonna make the both of you honorary council for unity members. Oh my, oh my goodness. <laughs> and, if, and if you send me your addresses, I'll mail you that, that certificate of membership. Oh, oh my goodness. God. That's so sweet. Thank you so much, Bob. You, you, you're incredible. Incredible. Oh, you guys. I loved it. It was great. I, I'm ready to come back anytime you want me. Oh, we appreciate oh, that. Thank you. Uh, thank you so I'll, much. Okay. You're welcome. You're welcome. All right. <laughs> Ciao. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Roaring Twenties Podcast. Be sure to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and please subscribe. You're never alone. Our pride sticks together. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Roaring Twenties Podcast. You get to start your week with us and end your week with us. With love, Brenda and Julia. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.